Would you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. Last month we looked uh, at Luke 15 and uh, the parables there, and now we're going to continue on with two more parables of Jesus in Luke 16. In Luke 15, we saw that the parables were all of one piece. They were all about <clears throat> lostness. They were all parables that were meant to illustrate Jesus' ministry in this world, that he came to seek and to save those who were lost. And he illustrated that in a number of different ways. There's the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, the prodigal son. Now we move to a very different set of parables. Instead of being uh, more spiritual, talking about salvation in so many words, these parables seem to be a little bit more earthy. They are parables that begin, there was a rich man, and they go on to talk about worldly wealth. And in essence, they talk about the long-term effect of using our resources. So we're going to look at two parables, one this week, one next week, that both deal with that long-term effect of using our resources. Let's uh, look at the first one, Luke 16. 1 to 15. I got 13, I think, on the screen, but we'll go to 15. Luke 16, 1 to 15. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. Now, just a note, some of you are reading, it probably says steward. Uh, the newer NIV uh, changes it to manager, and maybe that speaks better to our day and age to, to say this was the kind of job this man had. I do like steward because we get our idea of stewardship from it in the Christian church from this parable. The manager, or the steward, said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money, or the word there originally is mammon. We'll come back to that. The Pharisees who loved money 
heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And our focus is really going to be on that commendation in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you took this word and inspired Luke to record it and to share it for us, we pray that you would continue to inspire it now to us, that you might help us not only understand what it says, but that you might speak to each one of us individually here in a way that no pastor can do, that you would speak to us and tell us what this parable, what this message is meant to bring to you, to, to each of them today and in these coming weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in May, we looked at what might be the most important parable that Jesus told, the prodigal son. Today, we look at what might be the most confusing parable. Jesus' parables, his stories, can be used to make a variety of points, and nowhere is that more clear than in this parable. But it also can raise a lot of questions, and at issue with the listeners and the readers of this parable is, are things like, why would Jesus commend a dishonest person and use him as an example? What, parts of the, what verses are part of this parable and its ac- application? How do we interpret certain phrases like sons of light and mammon of unrighteousness? Now, you may not have heard those phrases quite that way. People of light is the way it comes out. The word for sons is also a gender-neutral uh, word in the Greek. Mammon of unrighteousness is translated worldly wealth, and it comes up a couple of times in this passage. We'll come back to those and what those mean. And maybe one of the most important questions, who is Jesus speaking to? Because that makes an impact on the point he's making. Now, there are a lot of different options that interpreters have given to what this parable is about. Some say it's a picture of salvation, of God's mercy, if we repent and bank on the Master's grace. And while that certainly was the point of the parables in Luke 15, I don't think that's the point here. I think that's a reading a lot into it, but some people like to kind of spiritualize everything, and and they may feel uncomfortable with the earthiness of talking about money. Others say the the point of the parable is don't be like this dishonest steward. And I hope you're scratching your head saying, where do they get that? But they're saying, well, the commendation by Jesus is actually sarcastic. But but I think that's reading far too much into it. Especially since the vast majority of, of interpreters believe that, in fact, the parable is about be like this dishonest steward, but only in his cleverness, not in his dishonesty. And I think that's been the typical way of of understanding this parable 
through the years, and I think that's the, the simple understanding of it, and it's a good one. Others say, uh, do anything you have to do in order to gain the kingdom because the time is short. And that does recognize the crisis mode the steward is operating in, and it applies, and then, but then they apply it to the shortness of time before Christ's return. There may be some elements of that there. Still others say it's all about repent, set things right, and become righteous again, which for them uh, meant to be Torah observant, to keep the law. <clears throat> well, I would suggest that that idea of being like the steward, but only in his cleverness, is, is the kind of the bigger picture. But I want to suggest that there's more to it than that, that can draw us a little deeper. This is clearly a parable about how disciples should use their resources, we call that stewardship, how disciples should use their resources to make an impact in the world for Jesus and the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. The parable is about how disciples should use their resources to make an impact in the world for Jesus and the kingdom of God. And though dishonest, the steward is an example of clever and successful stewardship. In contrast with others of the world of that day, particularly, as we'll see, a group known as the Essenes. And we'll talk about them a little, little bit later. Well, in the very first verse, two of our questions are answered already. We ask the question, who's Jesus speaking to? And we're told right at the beginning, Jesus told his disciples Okay, there may be other people hanging around, eavesdropping. There may be Pharisees there, we find out. But Jesus is talking directly to his disciples. So this has something to do with what Jesus is trying to teach disciples about their lifestyle and ministry. But the parable also is clearly about how to use your money and resources. It's one of three parables Jesus tells that begin, there was a rich man. We'll look at another one of those this next week. And all three of those are all about the stewardship of money and other resources. And so, this is not an allegory about salvation. You can probably make something of that, but that's not what the, I don't think that's Jesus' point here. So, what's the point? Well, we, we find this confrontation right, at the bat, right off the bat. The steward has been hired to run the owner's business with a large amount of control over the estate and and the business, and given the fact that this is in Galilee, likely the business is renting land to farmers. Someone owns a whole bunch of land, they rent it out, and the farmers can, can farm that, and then they give a share of their crop back as their payment, as their rent payment to that farmer. So this man, this manager, has been somehow misusing the owner's possessions we don't know exactly how. Some speculate that maybe he's charging too much to the renters and skimming the extra off the top for himself. But somehow, his mismanagement of money was found out. Now, note that he doesn't protest or make a defense. He's guilty. He's guilty. Some people, some interpreters uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus commending a dishonest person want to make him the innocent hero. That's, that's just not the case here. 
Well, the owner comes to him and asks, what's this I've been hearing? And the implication in the verb form is that he's been hearing this for some time. I, what is this I keep hearing about you? You're fired. Turn in the books. The owner cannot tolerate his money being wasted, nor his reputation being sullied in the community. He expects obedience and judges the one who fails him, though mercifully he doesn't have him thrown into jail. But this guy still has problems. He's out of a job. And when word gets around, he's not going to get another manager's job with anybody. He rules out physical labor only because of physical weakness. He rules out begging as below his dignity. So he's in crisis mode. He needs to create a situation to change his devastating public image. It's not there yet. No one's heard about this yet, but it's going to be. To change his devastating public image, and he has to do it quickly before word of his firing gets out and before he turns in the books. Now, we're not told the idea he comes up with. We, we simply have to watch it unfold as the parable is being told. But his plan is to clearly risk everything on his temporary authority over the master's money. He still has this for a moment. He's still acting as manager. No one else knows anything else about it. And so he's risking everything on that. If he fails, it will undoubtedly mean jail for him. If he succeeds, however, he'll win friends in the community, be accepted in their homes, maybe even get a new job. So he summons those who owe his master. They would naturally assume that he has something important, to an important message from the owner. The steward works quickly, knowing that once word gets out, no one's going to cooperate and the whole scheme will fall apart. But this also means that the land renters, the farmers, are not culpable in this scheme, which would have ruined their relationship with the owner, the landowner. So he's very careful about what he does. But the, the renters naturally assume the owner has approved this. So the tenant farmers of that day were liable for a set amount of crops from their harvest. We see the crops here in the case of this one is olive oil and of wheat. The steward has them cut their payment by a substantial though varying amount. Now, some think it may be the commission for himself that he's hidden in the final price so that what he's really giving back is only his own money, his own profit margin, whether it's legal, whether it's something he had worked out with the owner that he could, he could skim off the top, someone that was legal, or whether he had built that up himself to an even larger amount. Now, that's possible. It's not necessary for the point of the parable, but I think it probably is a, a good way of thinking about it. Given the Hebrew system of numbering, I think I've told you before, in Hebrew there are no numbers, only letters, and they use letters. Letters correspond to numbers. And letters, if you ever looked at the Hebrew, are often very similar, just maybe a little just a little uh, like an apostrophe or something added, uh, a serif if you're familiar with that term, added to a letter could make it into a different letter and therefore could make it into a different number. So it was quite easy to do. 
A bill might be changed by a simple, quick stroke of the pen. But the key to this entire transaction is the assumption, possibly stated in so many words, but at least hinted at, that this steward has arranged all of this and he's talked the owner into it. And that is the part that is going to benefit him in the future, that is going to raise his, his reputation in the community, his image in the community. So in the final scene, the, the steward turns in the books, now changed, to the owner, and the owner immediately sees what has been done. <clears throat> but the owner is not dumb. He also knows that at that moment, the local village is abuzz with word about the great generosity of this landowner, who of his own accord, with a little help from his steward, cut everybody's bill. He knows that at this time he's being lauded around the community as the, as the most generous landowner and businessman there ever was. Now, if this <clears throat> amount that, that the steward is giving back cuts into the owner's profit, he's banking on the fact that the community's praise would likely encourage him to simply validate the cut and accept the community praise. They don't, he doesn't sense that this is a guy that's going to go back and say, sorry, that's wrong, I'm, you have to pay this much again. If, however, this is just the steward's uh, amount that he was skimming off the top, or, or his salary in this, whether it's illegal or not, he's not only used his resources to win friends, but he's also used them to boost the owner's image in the community. Either way, perhaps to our surprise, he's given a commendation by the owner. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And through the words of the owner now, Jesus is commending the example of the steward to his disciples. But notice what he adds, second part of verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's going on here? What's Jesus commending? What is he telling his disciples to do, to be like? Well, here we find two important phrases that need interpretation from the first century. They are the phrases, people of light or sons of light and worldly wealth or mammon of unrighteousness. What are those all about? Well, people of light or sons of light is only used here in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John uses it once and Paul although in a different way. But for the most part, this phrase doesn't appear in the New Testament. It's not a phrase that, that they're used to from Jesus' teaching at the very least. However, it was a very prominent phrase in that culture. But it was a phrase that shows up a lot in what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some writings that, that were written before even before Jesus' day, 
by the Essenes who were out in the wilderness in Qumran. And they used this phrase, sons of light, to differentiate themselves from others who were sons of darkness. So they said, we're the sons of light. Everyone else around us, outside of our closed community, are sons of darkness. Might Jesus be referring to them? Since that was the most popular way that phrase was used in the first century. I would say quite likely because he also uses another phrase from their community. And that is worldly wealth, which literally means mammon of unrighteousness. We're familiar with the idea of mammon being translated into money sometimes or material goods because it happens in uh, oftentimes, it happens in this passage, it happens in, um, in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon simply meant money and material goods and, and resources. But of unrighteousness meant it was, maybe we'd call it today dirty money. It was money that was used by those criminals out there, by the, the crooked world that we can't trust. Dirty money. Now, this was a technical term used by the Essenes to refer to the wealth of outsiders, which they could not touch. They could not touch the wealth. The Essenes see it gathered in, the, in a wilderness near the Dead Sea in a place called Qumran to get away from the unrighteous outsiders. They built themselves a separatist community there. Then they pooled their own resources, which were only to be used within the community. They could have no contact, no buying or selling outside of the community. They couldn't touch anyone else's money, and they couldn't associate with people outside their community. David Flusser, uh, an Orthodox Jew who wrote a biography of Jesus, it's excellent, you should read it someday, so suggests that Jesus is saying, make friends of yourselves from the men who possess the mammon of unrighteousness. That is, make friends of these outsiders outside your community. So that when you are gone, an idiom for death, you will be welcomed into eternity. What does that have to do with anything? Jesus is in essence saying this, your resources, whether it's dirty money or not, you can't take with you. But there are some things you can take with you into eternity. You can take people that you win through the use of your resources. So Jesus is telling his disciples that he'd rather have them learn stewardship from the shrewdness of the world than from the stinginess of those separatist Essenes. I suppose today he might say something like, go to the business section of the bookstore to learn management principles rather than learning them from the Amish. Right? Don't learn them from the separatists. The people that shun the rest of the world will have nothing to do with them. Like the steward, he says, use the resources you have, temporary as they are, to make friends in the world. They actually saw an illustration of that. That's what Jesus did, right? Jesus was doing that all the time. 
He got together and had fellowship with the so-called sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the like. And only a few chapters after this, Jesus encounters a man, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He was one of the people that the Jews would have said had filthy money or dirty money. And yet he was associating with him. And what happened? Jesus brought him into eternity with him. So Jesus says, use the resources you have to make friends in the world, friends for the kingdom, friends that you might bring into eternity with you. You know what? This isn't just about money, is it? This is about evangelism. This is about witnessing. It's about going on mission trips. He goes on to give other important insights into resources, be faithful, the big stuff and the little stuff, serve God over material goods, and in the light of the Pharisees sneering, value people over money, even if those people are outcasts and worldly. But this parable, as one commentator notes, is the sort of rabbinic teaching that Jesus often engages in called Calvacomer, that is arguing from the light to the heavy. If this is so, how much more is this true? If the unjust steward has enough sense to use wealth to buy friends for the future, how much more should the righteous have a sense to use their wealth to buy for themselves friends for the world to come, people you can bring into eternity with you. So the main point is that the disciples of Jesus Christ don't hoard money and resources for themselves. You can't take it with you. But use your money and resources for the kingdom in the world to befriend those you can take with you into eternity. How are we doing as stewardly disciples? Let's pray.